Hey everyone, just a heads up that at the end of this month, at the end of April 2021, I'll be beaming Star Trek podcaster and science geek Justin Ozer aboard Strange New Worlds to talk about some of his favorite scientific concepts from the hundreds of Star Trek novels that he's read. Don't worry, we won't be talking about hundreds of books that week. Instead, our conversation will focus heavily on the scientific concepts underpinning three novellas from the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series. If you want to read along with us in the month of April, these books are Ishtar Rising, books one and two by Michael A. Martin and Andy Mangles, and Balance of Nature by Heather Jarman. Together, these three novellas amount to about 200 pages of reading. My episode with Justin will probably drop around the first week of May, so you have until then to finish this optional assignment. I've put links in the show notes where you can acquire the ebook version of these novellas. I've never read anything from the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series before. It's one of the few uncharted waters within the Star Trek multiverse for me. So I'm personally very excited to get started. I'm Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Last time on Strange New Worlds, we met Columbia University astronomer Tiffany Jansen. Yeah, uh, my name's Tiffany Jansen. I am a fifth-year graduate student, so I'm graduating this year at Columbia University, and uh, I work with David Kipping in the Cool Worlds group. And NASA Chief Scientist Jim Green. So I'm uh, Jim Green. I'm the NASA Chief Scientist. What I love to do is talk about the science uh, that we do in space. I've been in uh, NASA employees since 1980. <laughs> <laughs> we got to know their backgrounds, their love for Star Trek, and chatted about the scientific definition of planetary habitability and Tiffany's research on how planetary rotation rate affects habitability. Today, the second half of that exciting conversation. Let's begin by diving into Jim's research on planetary magnetic fields and how they impact a planet's chances of harboring life. You know, my specialty, I'm a magnetospheric physicist, which means I never met a magnetic field I didn't like. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I've studied magnetospheres all over the place in the solar system. You know, in Mars, Mars had a magnetosphere at one time. Now, what's fascinating about Mars is we know he, even here on Earth, that, you know, during volcanic episodes where molten rock is created and oozes out and then it begins to cool, what happens, of course, is the, as the electrons are spinning around the atoms and the, each of the atoms have uh, dipole moments and uh, the intrinsic magnetic field of the Earth is moving through this rock, being generated from inside deep, you know, just above the core. 
and goes out into space, those domains of those atoms will line up, the dipole moments of those uh, will line up, and then the rock will become solidified. And if the magnetic field changes direction, which they do, they go through changes, major changes in a cycle, then the rock maintains a magnetic signature. It's trapped in the rock. And so when we look at Mars, we see regions on Mars where the magnetic field direction is one way, and 100 kilometers later, it's pointing in the opposite direction. And so these domains, these changes, we've measured from orbit, from orbit, okay? Yeah. You know, so, so this is really a fantastic view into the past Mars. And of course, we now know that Mars has a very thin atmosphere. From the MAVEN observations, we see the solar wind stripping the atmosphere. And because we believe that Mars lost its magnetic field maybe three and a half or so billion years ago, indeed, perhaps the sun stripped most of that atmosphere away and with it, a fair amount of water that must have been on the planet. In fact, we also see so many indications of water in the minerals, mm -hmm. uh, in the low spots where water must have accumulated. We see rivers, we see deltas. You know, Perseverance is standing on a delta right now mm -hmm. where material flowed from a river into the ancient ocean of Mars. Mm -hmm. And now all that water is gone. And so consequently, you know, magnetic fields... I feel are an important part of the discussion. And we're just getting into that discussion. I think when we talk about exoplanets and their habitability, the magnetic history of the planet, I think has to be folded in. So yeah. it, it, it's a fundamental feature of all our planets. Now, the only one we don't know actually had a magnetic field or not is Venus, but there's no reason to think that it didn't. We just have no indication of it in its past. We do know that magnetic fields, when they come on, are an early feature of the planet that is generated in the core. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a liquid part of the core for which the Coriolis effect, okay, is creating currents, which those currents then generate the magnetic field. And that changes uh, direction over time, as we, as we mentioned. So um, that then has to be factored into the evolution of our planets. Now, the most recent work I did is look at the moon. You know, we brought rocks back from Apollo, and those rocks have told us that the moon had a magnetic field in its early past. You know, so from about 4.3 to about 3.2 billion years ago, it had actually a fairly strong magnetic field. In fact, wow. the magnetic field on the surface of the moon at its peak is twice that of what it is here on Earth, on the pole. But the fact that the moon is so much smaller, the magnetosphere of the moon would be significantly smaller. But the origin of the moon comes from the fact that an impact that hit the Earth which created the earth and the moon. And then the moon is moving away from the earth over time. But when the moon had a magnetic field, it was close to the earth. And so the two magnetospheres interacted and created shielding. 
and created a plug to the main planet in keeping its atmosphere together during a time when the, the young stars are pretty active that could actually strip away an atmosphere. So these things are related and we're just now becoming familiar with them. That's so interesting. I have heard theories about why the moon may have been important for Earth's habitability, stabilizing our obliquity, so forth and so on. But I've never heard of its magnetosphere protecting our planet uh, by combining with our own planet's magnetosphere. That is absolutely wild. Jim, I know that there's a debate in the literature right now about whether or not a planetary magnetic field is good or bad for habitability. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on that. Uh, you mentioned yes. Mars has this like wacky magnetic fields. Earth has a pretty stable dipole. Venus has no magnetic field whatsoever right now. There are three different cases in our solar system sure. of three wildly different planets. Uh, and right. only Earth turned out to be habitable in the long run. So, um, Well, Mercury's got a magnetic field. Even the giant planets have magnetic fields. They all have magnetic fields. So what we've been studying is the effect of the fields on atmosphere and atmospheric escape. What we know, of course, is stars, all stars, generate a spectrum of electromagnetic radiation. But the really important radiation, of course, is that high energy stuff, you know, the ultraviolet and x-rays that will hit an atmosphere, ionize it and create what we call plasma. In the case of the Earth, it's called the ionosphere, okay? And because of that, it's also more energetic. And if, it's, if it is more energetic than what the planet can hold, okay, in other words, it has a velocity where that energy allows it to escape, it will move out into space. Now, if that planet has a magnetic field, that ionospheric material, which is charged, must follow the field line. And so consequently, for fields like the Earth or any of the planets, the significant portion of the field leaves one part of the planet and actually is connected back into the other hemisphere of the planet. And so the ionosphere will move up and fill these magnetic flux tubes. And once they get full, once they completely fill up, that process stops. Now for the Earth, we call that region the plasmosphere. Now, the plasmosphere of the Earth was actually discovered in the 60s by a number of, of Soviet uh, scientists, really famous. Green Gauss is uh, one of them here on, uh, in the United States. It was Carpenter, Don Carpenter. And, and so a lot of the early work in magnetospheric physics was looking at the plasmosphere. Now, it exists at the exact locations that high-energy particles exist called the Van Allen radiation belts. So the magnetic field of our Earth has the ability to hang on to a significant amount about, uh, of our atmosphere. Now, in addition to that, during times of storms, when you have a coronal mass ejection hitting the Earth, the magnetosphere will rearrange itself. Particles are drawn from the tail dumped into the atmosphere causing aurora that heats up the atmosphere and then that atmosphere moves out and goes down the tail but as it moves down the tail it actually crosses field lines and ends up in the central portion of the tail which could actually be on close field lines and they fill up too so magnetic fields do a whole series of things to hang on to the atmosphere over long periods of time now, inject a moon into this environment, 
where the moon's magnetosphere and the Earth's magnetosphere are connected. And then the moon will collect Earth atmosphere. And so indeed, right now, the story of the ancient magnetic field of the moon can be teased out by going into these permanently shadowed regions in the North and South Pole and take cores, by taking cores of ice in these permanently shadowed regions, we can see perhaps the early Earth atmosphere, the evaporation of it, and then the deposition of it on the poles of the moon. Now, the moon also went through a geological history for which it was bombarded and it began to outgas. And so the current calculations on that are the, the, the areas that created the mare are huge impacts. They're huge impacts, blowing away a significant amount of crust, allowing liquid rock from the lower crust and upper mantle to pour into these impact regions and bringing up a mineralogy of, of higher mass material like iron. And that becomes very dark. That's why we have these dark spots on the moon. That's the Mari that are lava rock filling these holes. Well, the outgassing occurs. So this was occurring at the time the moon had a magnetic field. And so the current calculation is that so much outgassing was going on that the moon had an atmosphere, had its own atmosphere at about 10 to 12 millibar. That's bigger pressure than Mars has right now. And so the magnetic field hung on to that probably for 100 million years. That also allowed for the volatiles, you know, like water and other kinds of gases that change phase uh, with temperature to move and migrate to the poles and then collapse out, snow out, if you will, and then build up material in these permanently shadowed regions. So the magnetic field plays a really important role. Now, when the magnetic field gets too low and can't handle all these kind of physics, then it actually aids in losing the atmosphere, produces a pathways for the atmosphere to go. And so there's a break point in terms of the intensity of the field where it goes from protecting to enhancing the atmospheric loss. Fascinating. Wow. Jim, you, you're just blowing my mind here. Uh, I mean, as somebody who's very interested in the ancient Earth's atmosphere, because uh, I like thinking about the origin of life, you know, to know that there might be a record of that in lunar rocks uh, is so fascinating. And I think we just need to send up some astronauts over there as soon as possible yeah. and get those cores. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do it. We're, I'm on board with that idea. Are there any uh, missions, even in the thought process, to go and get these cores? Oh yeah, we're we're, we're working on them right now. You oh, bet. Oh, yeah. Great. So so the, the first one is Viper, and, and that's a rover. Uh, now that's going to drill, and it's going to uh, go into these permanently shadowed regions and drill down. It won't go very deep. We we'd like a, a really nice ice core, many meters in mm -hmm. length, uh, but it will start the process of really looking at what's there, how much water's there, how many other volatiles are there, and uh, that will really inform us. But indeed, there's quite a bit of talk of having our astronauts after they land on the moon in the next several years to really be able to go into these uh, permanently shadowed regions and interrogate them and create cores and then bring them back. Yeah, that would be fantastic. That's Just the incredible. plan. <laughs> oh, so, so great. 
uh, maybe it's time to ask Jim to dream up a planet for Star Trek now. If you could imagine a world with a wildly different magnetic field that could be encountered by your favorite crew in Star Trek, what would it be like? And, and would there be a story attached to that? Okay, so um, here's my thought. Because magnetic fields are so important, let's assume a civilization is old enough that it recognizes it, it's losing its magnetic field. But it is, it's technologically advanced that it could create one. So it goes into space and creates a current system at its Lagrangian point, its L1 point, and that produces a magnetic field that then the planet lives in the tail of that field mm. and the stellar wind does not erode its atmosphere, all right? Now, of course, you can bring up a variety of tension in this story by what may be happening to that magnetosphere, that artificial magnetosphere, and uh, whether there's a, you know, a fraction of people that, that want to destroy civilization by destroying that current or, and those people that want to maintain it to maintain the life in the society that they currently have. Mm -hmm. Huh. <laughs> That's a super fascinating sci-fi story. What yeah. That, what would that look like to generate a magnetic field like that? Wouldn't you have like a giant loop that you're sending a current through? Or, or yeah. What? So uh, it turns out several of us are working on uh, two papers on that idea right now because it, <laughs> it involves in terraforming Mars. Okay, so the concept is if we could go to Mars L1, produce a magnetosphere, and uh, right now the Rutherford Appleton people are, are, you know, they build these huge tokamaks with huge magnetic fields. They have created a capability where you have plasma stations and you actually run a current between these stations, this big loop current. Well, a loop current will generate a magnetic field, and in a solar wind, we'll create a magnetosphere. And then since it's L L1, that means Mars will be protected. So why is that important? Well, right now, the average surface pressure of Mars is six millibar, okay? Six millibar. And yet Maven is telling us all about all this atmosphere, this oxygen and, and hydrogen is being stripped away from Mars every day, day after day, it keep going. And yet the average is still six millibar. Well, what's happening is it is there's an equilibrium. Mars is outgassing, creating a stabilized pressure from when the solar wind is stripping. If we can stop the stripping, the outgassing then would increase the pressure. Mm -hmm. It would change that equilibrium. And so then you go from a planet of six millibar up to something higher. Yeah, and so Mars is less massive than the Earth how high of a pressure could it build up? Because it can only hold, hold on to so much in the atmosphere. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. That calculation I haven't done. Uh, that's a good question. The key thing is it would easily maintain several hundred millibar for the simple mm -hmm. reason it had to do that in the past anyway to maintain its water and, and that we've seen in, the, in its past. True. And that's wonderful because when you when you think about levels of terraforming, to me, the first level of terraforming on Mars would be to be able to get it up to 60 millibar, an order of magnitude of where it is today. If we can get the pressure of the atmosphere up to 60 millibar, that's called the Armstrong limit. 
that's where your blood doesn't boil. Mm. Now, the ability then for mobility, for systems that you have to take to keep your body, you know, intact and safe in this very low pressure environment changes. So you're, you have higher mobility, you have easier ability to maintain the equipment necessary to survive. The higher pressure, of course, means higher temperature. Now you move the temperature needle up and now you create a longer period of time for which water can stay a liquid on its surface. Now you have an opportunity to begin the next level of terraforming, which is planting trees. So trees have the ability to bring in uh, CO2, emit oxygen, and start that photosynthesis process of uh, changing the composition of the atmosphere. And now, you know, that's a game changer. So then you go to the next level of terraforming. Would trees grow taller on Mars? Ah, <laughs> tree. Oh, this is really a great question because yeah. they're growing taller now on Earth. Oh, Okay, so, well, because we are increasing the amount of CO2. Wow. There's certain types of trees that their average height now has increased and it's been measured. There's a list of those. I don't remember what's on the list at the moment, but uh, those trees, because the the CO2 has increased, you know, we're now up at maybe, I don't know, 460 or so parts per million of CO2 and that continually steadily goes up. That means those trees then are growing taller than they have in the past. That's fascinating. It is. Also, they could grow taller just because there is less surface gravity, right? Less holding them down. Well, on Earth, these are trees on Earth. You yes. know, so, so trees on Earth will still suffer the same gravity. But what's happening right now in this area is there's a group of researchers in Japan that are actually trying to grow trees in chambers at the same pressure and at some temperature close to Mars. And they're sycamores, they're using sycamore trees. And what they're trying to do, of course, is get to that point of what does it take pressure-wise and temperature-wise for trees to grow on Mars? Then once we get to that point, as we terraform Mars for life to live and work and you know, maybe stay for long periods of time or even, you know, stay for generations. That's the point of time when plant life will absolutely take off. Now, it goes back to Kim Mark Watney, really grow potatoes on Mars? And the answer is, (laughs) yeah. You know, it's got all the right stuff and the soil's got nitrates, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's moist. There's a lot of water in the crust of Mars, Unlike the Earth, where a lot of the water's been wrung out of the crust because of plate tectonics and the, the constant overturning and heating and the water bubbling out, Mars didn't have much plate tectonics. It had, we believe, a little, but it stopped early on. And so the crust is saturated with water. That's where a lot of the water in Mars is at now, is in the crust. And so consequently, that's going to be a great opportunity for vegetation. 
Yeah. My, my friend uh, Eva Scheller at Caltech um, and also a previous guest on this podcast just published a paper about that crustal hydration um, on Mars. And that's where a lot of the water went. And uh, I'm working on a project right now with uh, graduate student Danica Adams on trying to explain where all that nitrate in the soil of Mars came from through atmospheric photochemistry and lightning on a warmer and wetter early Mars. But those are totally different stories. Um, so yeah, you know, this, this idea of terraforming uh, Mars uh, brings up another potential sci-fi Star Trek concept. Uh, you know, luckily right now, we don't think that there is anything living on the surface of Mars. But if you imagined that exo-civilization that we were talking about before, constructing magnetic fields to protect its planet, maybe it wants to go and colonize the next planet over and needs to construct a magnetic field there. But there's already life living on that planet that maybe utilizes the radiation that is coming down on it because it's evolved in that high radiation environment, you suddenly, in order to make that planet habitable for your civilization, need to cut off the source of energy and food and nutrient for that already extant life there becomes a big ethical question, right? Do you do it? Do you not do it? It's like the prime directive. <laughs> well, you just need that Genesis machine to start out with, you know, where is that when we need it? <laughs> uh, oh dear, yeah, that, that'll that just rewrite everything. Um, yeah, there's a lot, actually a lot of ethical questions related to the Genesis machine, too. Wow, that never occurred to me. Like, if you use <laughs> well, that that's how a, come we got Spock back, you that's, know? Yeah, that's, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so... You know, listeners who are not scientists may not really know that conferences such as the Habitable Worlds Conference that we all sort of, quote unquote, met at um, as, as much as you can meet somebody uh, on a virtual conference, you know, how, how much these conferences are really part of the scientific process because they're opportunities for people at different institutions to meet each other, showcase your own work that you've been hard at work on and trade ideas with colleagues. Uh, that's just such a beneficial process of doing science. Uh, and, you know, as we're all stuck in the pandemic these days, um, which will hopefully be over soon, fingers crossed, um, you know, we're forced to meet online through Zoom and hold all of our conferences online. So I was just wondering if you had any reflections on Habitable Worlds and its virtual format. Did you think that that hurt or helped the conference? Well, yeah, I guess in terms of networking, it, it might have hurt a bit. But in terms of just overall energy, I found it, in a sense, easier to pay attention because um, just something about being in a, in a new place. So when we have these conferences in non-pandemic times for the listeners, uh, usually we all have to fly in um, into a big uh, conference center and you stay there for a week and, and it's... You know, for some people it's exhausting, for some people it's exciting, but I, I quite liked having the freedom of, um, you just have so much more time, I guess, that you're not spending traveling. Well, from my perspective, you know, uh, over this last year, I probably was in, um, oh, I don't know, four or maybe five conferences and they were all virtual. This one actually was done the best. They really did a fabulous job. Uh, I was able to stay with it longer. I was able to participate more and uh, I enjoyed it. I can always tell how important a conference is by gauging at the end of the conference how many new scientific ideas or new, new potential seeds that would germinate into a paper you know, and, and of course, uh, connecting with more colleagues, you know, it would have been wonderful for Michael, you and Tiffany to go to lunch with me, 
and we can talk about you know what your careers are what you're doing where you're going what you're thinking that we can't do and i think a virtual conference doesn't allow that to continue i mean you know what people don't realize is what do scientists do they talk science all the time (laughs) what do they think about they think about science all the time and so we're on whether we're in the meeting or over the lunch hour or thinking about and talking to colleagues uh, about their work and and trading papers and getting new ideas and and this is really important science is not done until it's shared true until Mm -hmm. it's shared Mm -hmm. now scientifically that sharing goes on at the conferences where our ideas come up here they are for the first time uh, you know have at it i gave a poster on magnetospheres of uh, exomoons and exoplanets in addition to being on the magnetosphere panel and unfortunately you know maybe i interacted with only half a dozen people on that concept well that's a new concept it's a new thought we're learning new things and uh, it would have been great if I could have, you know, it would have had a larger audience of interest. And so I think being at a conference where you're now looking for what new things can I learn? We'll walk into a room and there it is. You know, if it's virtual, you have to force yourself to do that, I think. Whereas if you're at a conference, it's a natural thing to do because you're actually talking to somebody and, and off you go or you're going to meet someone and you need to learn something about a particularly new topic. So the work we're doing in exoplanets looking for other solar systems is multi-dimensional in the sense of different sciences require. You have to know things about the sun, planetary science, atmospheric physics, biology, microbiology, you know, the ability to learn all those things. uh, You have to be in an environment where you can do that. And you have to realize you need to force yourself to do that. You need to realize you need to know things you don't know you know, you don't know. (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) there are things you need to uncover. So you have to explore. So I think a virtual meeting can only do so much. Yeah, these are all great points. Um, I definitely miss in-person conferences, but I have to say, you know, I wouldn't have known that you two were big Star Trek fans if it weren't for the online uh, aspect, because I saw Tiffany, you posted in the like, who am I uh, version of the Slack channel, your your picture of you in your Halloween costume with a (laughs) science Star Trek uniform. Uh, And uh, Jim, you know, I don't think I would have had the courage to say hello to you if we weren't forced to be in the same breakout room <laughs> to, in a discussion. So, you know, it's it's the pros and cons, um, but I would definitely love to take you up on that offer to go out to a meal with you, uh, both of you, um, oh, yeah. when we return to in-person conferences. So I've got just two last questions for you both. Uh, And this first one is, I know that you're both involved with other cool outreach projects. Tiffany, your lab at Columbia, the Cool Worlds Lab, has tons of followers on YouTube. And Jim, you've got NASA's official podcast, Gravity Assist. So I'd like to give you a moment each to just plug any projects that you have and anything that you want our listeners to know about. Yeah, um, check out the Cool Worlds channel on YouTube. It's it's mostly run by my advisor, David Kipping, but I've done a couple videos on it. Um, and it just explores, you know, cool 
somewhat futuristic, but also about the history of science. Um, one video is like, what would the end of the universe look like and whatnot, so. Awesome. For me, of course, uh, this is my fifth year of Gravity Assist. It's a very short little podcast, little interview of, of scientists. I interview scientists that are right in the field that are really working on fantastic things. And to me, they're so fantastic. We just gotta, gotta communicate that. You know, as I said, science isn't done until we communicate it. Now that's conferences, it's peer to peer, scientist to scientist, but it's these kind of social outreach activities. And Michael, your podcast too, of course, allows the public to hear these fantastic things that we're finding out. This is why we're so excited about this work. This is why we want, we're driven to find answers and we're driven to, to really get an understanding of the topics of how life started. What was that spark? And is it just here? Is it on Mars too or on another planet not very far away? So gravity assist was really all about how did you get into the field? What was your gravity assist that <laughs> changed your direction and accelerated you towards the scientist you are today? Nice. And uh, so it's been a very popular podcast for NASA. Actually, it's the, the second one NASA did. There was already another one going when they asked me to do that. And I thought just like for a millisecond, I said, absolutely. And not only that, I know exactly what to call it. You know, and so, so the NASA communications people go, oh, great. What are you going to call it? And I said, I'm going to call it gravity assist. They hated that idea. <laughs> they, what? They, yeah, they didn't recognize what I was talking about. And that is really everyone has to get, you know, excited and put things together to recognize what they want to do in the future. And, you know, if you're going to be successful, you have to be determined. If you're going to be known in the field, you have to be able to have drive, you know, and it's not just all about being the best student in a class. It's not, <laughs> it's really not, it, it, that's, that can be important at times, but it's not the most important thing at all. It's really your drive. And so scientists have to get that from somewhere. They have to be exposed to new ideas and then they become a scientist and then they become interested and then they are driven then to uh, be the scientists they are today. And that's, that's just like a spacecraft taking a little angular momentum away from Jupiter <laughs> and speeding off in a different direction at a higher velocity going to Pluto like New Horizons did. And that's a gravity assist. Well, I, I really appreciate that name. I think it's just perfect. And I can think of many people who have given me gravity assists over the years. And I, I'd say Star Trek was a huge gravity assist as well in propelling yep. me in this direction. That's right. So my final question for you both is something that I've been asking all of my guests in 2021, because, you know, it's, it's a tough time. We're in the pandemic. And I just wanted to ask you, what is something that makes you hopeful and it can have to do with science it can have to do with star trek or it can have to do with neither of those just something that makes you hopeful about the future hmm. <laughs> this long silence is a, it's a bad sign <laughs> <laughs> no don't worry about it i'll, I'll edit that out no 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 but uh, actually star trek next generation is the thing i watch when i'm feeling down about humanity uh, just mm. reminds me that we we can have a more uh, egalitarian society, and it's possible. 
That's wonderful. Well, for me, it's right here sitting on the other side of the Zoom. It's Michael, <laughs> you and Tiffany. That you're the next generation scientist. I'm in awe with what you are doing. You have to recognize that when I was going through graduate school, I didn't know a tenth of what you knew. <laughs> and that's because the field in every area has absolutely exploded. You know, what am I talking about? Well, as I said, I grew up at, at a time when there wasn't planetary science. You know, NASA invented planetary science. I worked on Voyager data. Planetary science was uh, only done from the back of a telescope. And now we're there. Now we fly by, we orbit, we land, we rove, and we return samples. Things that you just, we, you know, was impossible to think of when I was young, you know, when I was a teenager. Now we do that routinely. And so this explosion that's going on is so obvious to me. Now you, you're in the middle of it and I, I'm sure you don't recognize it, but um, I really wish I was a graduate student just getting my PhD, knowing what I know and then facing the rest of my career to make exciting, groundbreaking, unbelievable discoveries and that's what you will do. Jim, you have no idea what that means to hear those words come from your mouth. It's like a, a cadet or an ensign getting complimented by Mr. <laughs> Spock on the bridge in front of the bridge crew. It's just like, it's the most fantastic feeling. Thank you yeah. so much for that. I'm my my pleasure. <laughs> it's all very true. It's all very true. Well, with that, thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds. It's been an absolute blast. I learned a lot this uh, past episode. So um, yeah, it's it's been so fun. Yeah, I learned a lot too. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Indeed, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. And I did too, all right? <laughs> thanks so much. Oh gosh, I am still glowing from Jim's incredibly kind words at the end of that conversation. I honestly think I'll remember this interview for the rest of my life. And if I turn out to have a long and storied career in planetary science and astrobiology, I'll have Jim to thank for giving me that little gravity assist right here on Strange New Worlds. Jim's scientific revelations about the moon's magnetic field blew me away. That remnants of the Earth's early atmosphere from around the time that life started on our planet could potentially be stored in lunar rocks is so incredibly intriguing to me. I mean, sign me up to be that astronaut who hunts for those precious clues that might help us unravel our origin story. Honestly, I would love that. The chance to be a spacefarer, you know, not to go around planting flags or building low-gravity hotels for the uber-rich, but to be an astronaut scientist, driven by curiosity, full of respect for the distant landscapes that we explore, just in awe of the fact that they can tell us who we are and why we are here. 
and traversing chasms of empty vacuum for the mere chance to ask those penetrating questions of those far-off geologic formations, <sighs> wouldn't that be the life? You know, one of the greatest things about having two guests at once is the crosstalk that emerges. I loved how Tiffany took over and just started asking questions that piqued her interest, questions that I honestly would have never thought to ask myself. So I have to thank both Tiffany and Jim once again, from the bottom of my heart, for joining us on Strange New Worlds. I loved these past two episodes because they really highlighted the fact that there are many dimensions to habitability. It's a truly interdisciplinary venture, hence the conference that Tiffany, Jim, and I attended. As Jim mentioned, to broach the topic of planetary habitability, you need to know things you don't know you don't know. You just need to explore. And that's why I'm so happy to be in the University of Washington's astrobiology program. It's one of the few academic institutions in the world that brings together researchers from all different fields. Astronomy, chemistry, geology, oceanography, genomics, even psychology, to work together on these big questions. But my postdoc appointment at UW is ending soon, and I'll be moving on, and I can't wait to share the details of that news with you on an upcoming episode of Strange New Worlds. Until then, see you out there.